this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Gosh Pods, our podcast from the Gosh Learning Academy where we highlight all the educational work that is happening across the GLA. This week we're previewing our new show, Master the MRCPCH, where we'll be releasing weekly summaries of topics linked to the MRCPCH syllabus. It may be that you're preparing for your membership exams or just fancy a run-through of a clinically interesting topic. We hope you'll enjoy either way. If you do enjoy this week's episode, don't forget to subscribe to Master the MRCPCH. The links will be in our episode description. Welcome to Master the MRCPCH, a podcast where we'll be speaking to the experts here at Great Ormond Street Hospital to give you a run through of an interesting topic on the RCPCH curriculum. My name is Rian Thomas and I'm the Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street and a Registrar in Clinical Genetics. In today's episode, I'm very lucky to have had a chat with the brilliant Dr Ellie Yule, a paediatric neurodisability ST7 grid trainee and British Academy of Childhood Disability trainee rep. Today's episode is the first of two on cerebral palsy and today we will be focusing on etiology and classification. This topic corresponds to the RCPCH theory exam syllabus under neurodevelopment and neurodisability ANDEV-N1 which is to be able to assess, diagnose and manage developmental disorders, learning difficulties and causes of disability including cerebral palsy and abnormal movement disorders. For those preparing for their clinical exams, a patient with cerebral palsy could be included in the neurology or developmental assessment stations or even the history-taking section. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you, Ellie, for being here with us today. Before we get going, do you want to tell us what you'd like people to get out of this podcast? Sure, thanks, Rianne. So I think it would be useful to be able to give a reasonably succinct definition of what cerebral palsy is. And as well as just listing some of the common causes, try and have an understanding of those and how the common causes link with the clinical profiles you might come across. Having an understanding that there are ways to classify cerebral palsy and none of those are perfect, but being able to use a bit of a shared language when describing them will be helpful. And understanding a few of the important cerebral palsy mimics, which is going to be important and that can sometimes pop up in your clinical exams as well as one of the nerve-wracking questions at the end of a station so I I think that would be a really good starting point. Brilliant well it's it's so good to have a structure for these things isn't it because when you're kind of panicking in in that situation of clinical exams to be able to go back and think through things in a logical order. Absolutely. (laughs) That sounds perfect so do you want to tell us what actually is cerebral palsy and if there is a kind of agreed definition? Yeah, yep, sure, can do. So what's cerebral palsy? So there is a generally a shared definition and it's a sentence that you might see structured slightly differently, but the key points of it would be that it's a, a group of conditions. So we have the cerebral palsies, a bit like we have the epilepsies. So to have a cerebral palsy, you'd have to have a difference that's affecting your movement or posture or both. And that difference or impairment is caused by a non-progressive disturbance that's happened in the developing brain. So when we're talking about the developing brain, we're talking about right from conception through to generally up to the age of two. Some definitions would stretch as far as five, but most people would say that going up to the age of two is the fixed disturbance that we'd consider a cerebral palsy. 
older than that we're thinking more things like stroke and traumatic brain injury but there is a bit of overlap and the concept of it being a non-progressive disturbance is really important because that means the change that happens to the brain has happened and the change is no longer continuing but how that change to the brain affects the child's movement and posture can change through their lifetime. The important thing to remember as well is some infants can have some early clinical signs and a history that suggests cerebral palsy is being strongly considered and may become relevant for them because the ongoing development of the brain they come out of that category and it would no longer be diagnosable because they don't have a motor impairment and some children who are living with these motor impairments with high tone and variable tone they're more significantly impaired by that as their body grows and develops particularly coming up to adolescence and growth spurts around there and they can go through phases through their life of a, a loss of skills if we don't give adequate intervention or even with adequate intervention, a skill skill set can change. So it sounds like obviously there's a wide spectrum of, of clinical features and that it affects people quite differently. Absolutely. How, how common is cerebral palsy? So generally speaking, if you are remembering the number two in a thousand, you'll be doing well to remember. It is the it's the common motor disorder of childhood. It is the motor disorder of childhood. Um, some some studies you'll see more in the western world going into the states it'll be going even higher to four to five per thousand but generally around two per thousand is is a good one to remember it's been a relatively static rate despite increasing survival rates for term babies and preterm babies it's more common in boys than girls and the commonest type of cerebral palsy is to have spasticity so if we're thinking a bit about how we understand where it comes from there's a quite when you're thinking about the cerebral palsies it's quite easy to tie yourself in knots about worrying about saying the wrong thing um but if we go back first we'll have a think about some of the causes of cerebral palsy but to do that you have to think about the clinical pictures because they generally tie in really well together so while we're describing the the causes, let's have a think of some of the, the, the common clinical pictures you'll see. You could go and use a surgical sieve and say, is there a trauma? Is there a vascular event? Was there infection? Was there a metabolic process? But really thinking about your clinical syndromes is a good way to remember the commonest etiologies, I think. So first of all, going in with hemiplegia. So that's a motor impairment affecting one side of the body. So upper limb and lower limb. The causes of that are going to be, often it's a vascular event, so a stroke either in utero or perinatal. Timing of it can be very controversial and needs a lot of MDT input from your neuroradiology team. But other things that could happen could be a focal trauma, an infectious lesion, a unilateral infarction in the brain after hemorrhage. Usually with a hemiplegia, it's spasticity that predominates with plus or minus a bit of dystonia as well. And then the other systems impaired can be visual field loss, so Myopias, depending on where the, the lesion is and one of the, the higher groups of the cerebral palsy is to have an epilepsy associated. So etiology in the diplegia, so diplegia is the motor impairment that affects predominantly the legs but you can have some hand skill impairments accompanying it. Classically diplegia is a consequence of prematurity so you're looking and seeing the periventricular leukomalacia. It's on the increase as more preterm babies survive. Generally speaking you've got a bit less epilepsy in this group and a varied degree of learning disability or learning difficulty. So this is a really important point where when you're considering your etiology you want to think if there's no real setup in it if you've got a diplegia if there's no real setup there for prematurity if there's 
no evidence of leucomalacia, could it be something else? Could it be one of the hereditary plastic paraparesis, the genetic causes of diplegia? Etiology-wise, when we're thinking about the forelimb impairment, so the children who've got the more profound impairments, so quadriplegia, plus difficulty with their trunk control, plus learning disability, we're thinking about the prenatal and perinatal hypoxic events, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, was there a setup for that when you look at the birth history? Is there evidence of damage on the MRI? Some There can be PVL, there can be damage specifically to the motor tracts as they come down, so input from the neuroradiologist. And when you've got the fall-in where it's not the commonest types, the spastic types, where you've got predominance of the variable tone types, so the choreoathetoid movements, and we're going to have a good think about all these in just a sec, you might be considering the processes which are affecting the basal ganglia. So that's things like reasons that you're going to have pigment laid down in the basal ganglia or hypoxia to them. So going back to your causes of connicturus and linking that in as well. If you've got dystonia as a predominant feature, but no clear history of this sort of global, what we call a global insult, a, a setup where there's been a, an insult to the whole brain, you have to be thinking, could this be one of the other CP mimics, uh, a dopamine responsive dystonia? And also if you've got ataxia and hypotonia, so clumsiness with gait, incoordination and low tone, particularly in the trunk, with no clear history of a perinatal event, are the image findings consistent with it being a cerebral palsy or is there another process at play, a neurodegenerative process, a neurometabolic process? So I like to think about your etiologies in terms of your clinical syndromes because it makes it more real for me and linking it to patients I've seen makes it stick more. But you could also use a surgical sieve or you could think prenatal, perinatal, postnatal, whichever way works for you. Just try and choose one and hang on to it. <laughs> Perfect. That's a really clear run through of the etiology. So we're going to move on to talk about the, the classification. So I'd be interested to hear about how you think about the classification and if you've got any strategies for, for remembering that. Yeah, sure. So when we think about the classification of cerebral palsy, there's loads of different terms that you're going to come across. And to be fair, the variability in how they're used is going to continue for some time. But really, strictly speaking, in the world of diagnosing cerebral palsy and trying to code for it to gather data, which is so important when you're planning interventions, we try and stick to the terminology from the SCPE, which is the Surveillance of Cerebral Palsy in Europe project, which is, as, as it sounds, a cross-Europe observational data gathering project that's been going on since the late 90s. And this, rather than using the terms hemiplegia, diplegia, quadriplegia, it's much more specific in describing what the the patient's experiencing. So you'll see such description as predominantly unilateral or bilateral. And when it's unilateral, the upper limb being more affected than the lower limb, which is what's usually happening when you have a unilateral cerebral palsy or bilateral lower limb predominant, which would map onto the idea of diplegia, but it, it's better at acknowledging that the people with lower limb involvement predominant will still have some fine hand use problems often when you look carefully. And then you've got the total body involvement, which is what would um, in the old terms be called quadriplegia, but it, it more accurately describes someone who's got full limb involvement plus problems with their core stability and truncal tone. So just being mindful, trying to stick to the SCPE will, will be useful. 
So I think it's useful to think about the prime, what's the predominant motor disorder and then build your classification around that. So really understanding when you're describing what is spasticity, just take a moment and think about what you understand that to be. It's not just stiffness. It's understanding that well, spasticity is, is velocity-dependent increase in resistance to passive muscle stretch. So it's something you elicit on examination. So that increase in resistance is inappropriate and it, it's involuntary. We have these feedback mechanisms that allow our, our muscles to move in pairs, your biceps contracts, your triceps relaxes. And that's the process at play that's been disrupted by the fixed impairment. So this is when you have to go back to all the stressful neuroanatomy that you're trying to hold on to from medical school, but I've never really had to think about until you're asked to do a neuro exam on the spot. But it is useful to know about because it helps you think about what you're seeing. So when you're eliciting a, a reflex that's brisk and hyperreflexic, it's telling you there's upper motor neuron damage because the feedback loop via the cord is not being damped down as it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be having input from your motor cortex goes through that internal capsule, crosses over at the medulla and comes down the lateral corticospinal tract. And that's where on that little circuit between the muscle into the cordon and back again, it's supposed to be working there. And so you can think of the whole system as being a bit more overexcitable, so you're hyperreflexic. The other thing we think about with hyperreflexia in spasticity is that classic clasp knife rigidity. That's telling you it's velocity dependent. So you do that quick stretch of the muscle and you quickly feel some resistance that then lets go. So that's different to the Parkinsonism rigidity through the whole stretch of that muscle. So then the other types of dyskinetic motor difference are dystonia and choreoathetoid movements. So that's telling you that there's been another impairment somewhere in that downgoing motor pathway, but it tends to be the extra pyramidal. So not many causes of cerebral palsy behave and follow one strict anatomical descriptor. So you often get spasticity with dystonia or with a global event, uh, spasticity with choreoathetoid movements. But let's think about what these actually are, these terms that we're just sort of throwing around. Dystonia is like the other main abnormal and excessive tone, but it's not got that dynamic stretch or velocity element and it's fluctuant. It's usually present to some extent alongside the spasticity, as we said, and think about those important CP mimics when we were talking about etiology, if you've got it on its own and there's no real setup for there being an insult there. And then you've got choreoathetoid movement difference, which is slow, involuntary, sort of writhing movements. You see them at the larger joints and the small joints, so the fingers, hands, toes, feet, and it usually reflects that the upper motor neuron damage is somewhere around basal ganglia. That's got an, another important inhibitory role on those downgoing motor circuits. Ataxia can be really important, and um, if that's a predominant feature you're wanting to think about, again, these more global insults and cerebellar insults. So if you've got a baby who's initially quite floppy, and then goes on to develop a sort of tremulous and discoordinated movements. Is there a cerebellar cerebral palsy at play or is there an important CP mimic, so a, a degenerative cerebellar process? And of course they can be mixed. So classification based on the primary motor difference can be useful but then you need to fit that in with how it is affecting the child's function and adaptation to life. So a really useful thing that has come about is these functional classifications 
and that can apply to movement and ambulation it can apply to hand skill it can apply to feeding skill communication skill so just be aware that there are levels you may hear gmfcs being used to describe a child's functional motor ability that's gross motor function and it will give you a description about how they ambulate independently or to what degree of assistance they need for their ambulation and their posture management and you've got max which is manual ability classification system which tells you a bit about hand and arm function and dexterity and you've also got the communication function classification system which is really useful and edex which is the eating and drinking ability classification just having an awareness that functional descriptors are really important. Thank you so much for going through that, Ellie. That was uh, really, truly brilliant. Just to kind of round things off, I wonder if you wouldn't mind answering our sort of quick fire (laughs) questions. So to start off, are there any sort of classic exam questions or things that people should know inside out before going into exams that, that tend to pop up about cerebral palsy? I think we should have an understanding that it is the commonest motor disorder of childhood that the main risk factors are prematurity and low birth weight and you should have somewhere close to your fingertips those important CP mimics depending on the clinical picture so some of the hereditary spastic paresis some of the understanding that you can have genetic dystonias and understanding that if the process appears neurodegenerative it's not cerebral palsy so you need to think again top tips there and for people wanting to read a bit more into this subject are there any resources that you'd recommend them having a look at yeah have a look at what the gmfcs actually is and what that's describing and what it's used for so it's it's a, it's a sort of shorthand to communicate a child's motor function level and it's reasonably static over time so it tells you a bit about what they might expect going into adolescence and adulthood and being aware that there are other functional classification systems but don't get too tied up in the details of those brilliant and the last question is so what are your three takeaway learning points that you hope people will remember after listening to this podcast so cerebral palsy rarely stands alone i think that's one Functional classifications are important, number two. And number three, make sure you've got an understanding of the terms you might be using when describing. Are you describing spasticity? How are you showing spasticity when you examine? Are you describing dystonia? Those are the major ones. What are the other motor differences you're seeing and describing? That'll do. Thank you so much, Ellie. That was absolutely fantastic. And for those wishing to find out a bit more, you can return for the second part of this podcast where we talk about diagnosis and management. So thank you very much, Ellie. No problem. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find GOSH Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next time. Bye.